You're listening to a podcast from the College of Arts and Humanities at University College Dublin. In this podcast, an extract from Writing the History of Civil War. This UCD Centre for War Studies seminar gathered some of the leading scholars of civil wars together to discuss their unique approaches to the subject. In this episode, Dr. Anne Dolan, Associate Professor in Modern Irish History at Trinity College Dublin, talks about writing the history of the Irish Civil War. This seminar is also available as a video on historyhub.ie. Podcasting is by Real Smart Media. I suppose to address Robert's question that he said, is I opted to work on civil war because it takes much of what's interesting about war and intensifies it from mobilisation when the decision to fight might march you out to face an enemy from the next parish, the next farm, the next field. So the type and quality of violence on into the living with it after when parish, farm and field have to work out some means to function, albeit never get along. I opted for civil war because there's less of the stench of heroism about it, because it leaves something harder to rectify and rectify at the most mundane levels of existence. P.S. O'Hegarty summed up his disillusionment with the Irish Civil War in 1924. For him, it banished, as he put it, our deep-rooted belief that there was something in us finer than, more spiritual than anything in any other people, that we were really an uncivilised people with savage instincts, and the shock of the plunge from the heights to the depths staggers the whole nation. I opted for civil war perhaps because I find disillusionment more interesting than triumphalism, but maybe more I opted for anything that encouraged the type of uncertainty O'Hegarty here laments. I opted for civil war because most of what I learned about it didn't make a huge amount of sense. I was told that it was central to Irish political life, that it explained its fundamental divisions, but also that it was the thing that went most avoided, most unmentioned, that it was the place where veterans' memoirs stumbled and stalled and went awkwardly quiet. I opted for civil war because even after the most cursory glances, I found that that was absolute rot. There was plenty of people talking about it, writing about it, raging and indifferent about it, that whatever reticence there was, it was the reticence of, a later, of later generations imposing, for all sorts of reasons, their own reservations, their own sense that silence was and always had been the most appropriate response. I still opt for civil war because it's at the most once the most overplayed and at the same time the most underestimated dimension of our recent history and the concerns that seems to be brewing over how we might best acknowledge its 100th anniversary might do well to reflect with calm perspective rather than panicked circumspection. Better known for his short stories, Frank O'Connor could write without comment that he took up lodgings in the house of an ex-Free State Army officer some mere months after his release from a Free State prison in 1923. While the rent he paid may well have tempered the passions for political division in that house, that he could live there at all, never mind write of it, with such a sense of normalcy, nay indifference, should certainly give us pause for thought. There were far more to both lodger and landlord than has so far been within our ken. I looked at civil war initially through the prism of commemoration, so in many respects I've always been interested in aftermaths as much as in civil war itself. How places do or don't put themselves back together, for me, is as important as the breach in the first place. But I'm conscious that this type of navel-gazing is as tedious for you as it is embarrassing for me. So I'd prefer to show you something of what I mean. I'm going to take you to a back road in a small place in 1928. I want you to pull your chairs up to eavesdrop on a row, a row about turf, missing maybe stolen, taken turf. I want you to overhear the insults thrown, imagine the war of words that ended up in Cavan Circuit Court, where a man called Philip Smith was ordered to pay £10 damages for calling Lucy Galligan's virtue into disrepute. 
Whether Lucy Galligan was as chaste or faithful as Philip Smith thought she ought to have been, we may never know or need to care. But in the course of unpicking the case, the court heard some of what passed for insults in that small place in 1928. As far as Smith saw it, Mrs Galligan's husband, as he said, ought to be shot for thatching Sarahan's roof. He needed no elaboration or explanation for this to hit home. Lucy Galligan, no less than all the busybodies at the back of the court, knew exactly what he meant by that. The Sarahans were James and his wife Mary Ann, and both were murdered under that same thatched roof five years before. In December 1923, more than six months after the end of the Civil War, two men forced their way in and murdered husband and wife. At the time, the newspapers called their deaths the most atrocious murder ever committed in this country, which was quite a claim given the share of violence the newspapers had described in the months and years before. Admittedly, Cavan had not known the kinds of violence other counties knew, and maybe murder of any kind was shocking, when for close than seven months, now what looked like war was supposed to have given way to what passed for peace. Maybe that alone was enough to prompt such headlines. But maybe it was because the Sarahan's seven-month-old daughter was found, as one newspaper put it, sleeping with his little nightdress saturated in her mother's blood. Maybe it was just the awful vividness of such a stain on such a little dress. Maybe it merited the phrase most atrocious because Mary Ann Sarahan had been shot in the face because she was over four months pregnant carrying a son, as her post-mortem found out. Maybe it was just because the idea of men coming to the door in the darkness, forcing their way in, was all supposed to be done and gone by the end of 1923. Hadn't that at least finished? That same newspapers that called this atrocious were also very quick to say the crime has no political significance, and maybe it hasn't in the usual obvious sense. The Sarahans arguably died because of land, because of eight acres, eight acres, two cattle and four pigs to be precise. They died over a very local row, and the row went on. No one would buy hay or oats from the farm the following year, Sarhan's brother preferred to face court in 1925 rather than deal with his dead brother's debts, too afraid to tend the farm or to use what little money he had, Sarhan had left him. Nearly five years after these murders, the charge of thatching their roof was as bad as slut or whore or whatever aspersion Philip Smith could, could think to cast on a married woman's virtue during a squabble on the side of the road. It was still part of the winning and the losing of a small local row, still part of the cruel banter of the backroads that said Cavan had no intention of burying its hatreds with its dead. This is just a small example and was pretty, wasn't hard to find. And while it is not, as the newspapers said, arguably about civil war, as we may usually define it, it is not untouched or unshaped by it either. What brought a big British bulldog revolver, as it was described by the journalists, to the bottom end of Cavan in December 1923? What made and shaped the men who now knew how to use it, who now knew how to kill in that way and who still thought killing like that was the way to settle old scores months after civil war was done. I'm not suggesting that we craft a history of civil war that dredges up every fought-over field, every overwrought local passion, that loses itself in the hatreds of small places where slights and sins are known, seed, breed and generation. Don't worry, Homer's ghost is not whispering here as he did to Patrick Kavanagh. I only want to muddy the waters, not craft an Iliad from such a local row. I'm interested in civil war because, if nothing else, the Sarhans and their killers show us up something of our undue neat and tidiness when it comes to this and other types of conflict. They show how readily we've settled for obvious subjects and chronologies, how quick we've been to accept when one war ends and another begins because a traditional or dominant political narrative has always said it was so. The Sarhans and their killers did not keep time to our rather straightforward tune. Dividing the period up easily, rising war of independence, civil war, never mind that this is all a deeply 26-county type of division at that 
or that any and all of these terms are contested yet, makes less and less sense as we begin to ask different types of questions of the records and particularly of the violence we might find there. There remains a quality to the violence described above that reaches right across the period of revolution here for shorthand that mocks the easy periodisation we seem keen for convenience sake to settle for. Before 1919 and after 1923, the records let us see how violence works, what it asks of those who fight, of those who watch, of those who pass quietly by whatever the year whatever we call the war. And the more we ask of the records, the more the distinctions blur. Irishmen killed Irish men and, to a lesser extent, women right through and beyond it all. The violence reveals maybe many civil wars, civil wars that bleed beyond the margins we've largely drawn, just so we can set our wars apart and classify them all neat and tidily away. For those who fled and those who were fled from, there was none of the clarity about where one war ended and another began. I'm interested in civil war because it makes it very hard to be neat and tidy about very much at all, which is important because, because I think we have our upcoming anniversaries and they've tended to leave us searching for quite straightforward, easy narratives in the past. And with the centenary coming, it almost behoves us to interrogate the aftermath of civil war here all the more. How long did the divisions last? What forms did they take? And which do we choose to recognise? How do they continue to express themselves? How do they cling on so that another next generation knew exactly which old sore to prod so that prodding hurt? Who decided when and if division got to stop? So in a way, my squabble on the back roads of Cavan comes to matter as much as civil war itself, because we can begin to gauge something of how all that period did or did not thrive in that one small place. We can begin to see the tangle of it all, how all the politics and the violence of those years meshed with and became knitted into hatreds that may well have long predated them, hatreds and slights that then shaped them, that added who you voted for, which side you willingly or unwillingly took, who you helped, befriended or turned your back on to your list of old unforgiven sins that just became another means to hold you to the same old account. Of course, this period gave plenty of cause for new divisions and divides, but we would be foolish to pass up on the rich tapestries of spice that patch our landscape both after, during and before. How division hangs on says something of its depth, something of what it started as, what it once was tells us at least how people chose to fathom the nature of it all. If we slip too readily into a world slip plainly pro and anti-treatyite, we are left with only a neat and tidy understanding of this divide. We make something drab and lesser of what might be much more challenging and interesting terrain. We've been intense in our scrutiny of how violence started, operated and stopped, but we've been less assiduous here, I think, about the times between when those same groups with such seemingly deep divides could somehow rub along together cheek by jowl could put themselves back together enough to get by. And in ways, that is what I want to get at here, because I think it might shed some light on the nature of the divisions themselves and ask questions of actually how deep they went. The Sarahan's death, partly because of all the brutal detail to be found, give us a glimpse, I think, in an Irish context of what might have been as much as what was. What is most striking about the years that followed the Irish Civil War is how relatively quickly law and order was re-established and how relatively few Sarahans there were. Do we find that instead of being ruled and ruined by our divisions, we actually dealt with them relatively well? That given the conditions, there could have been more deaths, more spite, more sectarianism, more avarice, more greed, and you can pick whatever word you want. Police reports, for example, reflect the hunger for land, the sense that violence was to be feared from all sorts of sources here. But it's also clear by late 1924 and into 1925 that most of what was feared never came to fruition. Our massacres are measured in remarkably small numbers and we probably shouldn't lose sight of that. 
I'm interested in the Irish Civil War because this is where it really has something important to say to other contemporary conflicts. How and why could it be so contained here when so many other new states at the same time tore themselves much more violently apart? If we follow on from Bill Kazan's choice of the Finnish Civil War as an appropriate contemporary comparator, a war with approximately 36,000 dead in less than six months, compared to Ireland's at its lowest estimates around about 1,500, even if you take it, uh, the highest estimate I've, I've found of about 5,000 dead, we can also see just how dramatic the differences continued to be after both civil wars end. In, in the 1920s and 30s, they were the most violent in Finnish history if measured by the rates of homicide, with homicide rates almost double in the 20s what they'd been before the First World War. In the Irish Free State, by contrast, homicide rates went into a significantly sharp decline. Annual reports counted 1,052 in 1921, uh, but only 24 by 1925, 16 by 1932, five of which were cases of infanticide. It may well be an extreme measure, but it is one which we should dwell on when tempted, particularly going towards the centenary of all this, to give in to our Angela's Ashes instincts that worse than that, the ordinary miserable civil war is the miserable Irish civil war. V.S. Pritchard came here as a poorly paid journalist to explain to his readers the nature of civil war. Finding Dublin dull in early 1923, he found, followed the civil war south, and while the sounds of shots told him danger wasn't far away, it didn't stop him going to the theatre, where Doran's touring company were playing a different Shakespearean tragedy to packed houses every night. His first sights of Macbeth and Hamlet and Othello were shared with the commercial travellers who stayed with him in the same hotel. He remembered Shakespeare in Kerry voices shortening the road back to his hotel bed. Called home by his editor, his explanation for his departure should make us think. By the end of 1923, Ireland, he writes, which had attracted the newspapers of the world since 1916, had ceased to be interesting. No one wanted to read about Ireland anymore, and so he left because there was a coup to chase in Spain instead. Unlike many of the other new states to emerge at this time, this place did survive. It had probably some of the most stable 1920s and 30s in Europe, and it avoided the excesses of political extremes when much of Europe began to march to the rhythms of a fascist or a communist jackboot. Stability was a valuable commodity in interwar Europe, however much it seemed to look like stasis for Ireland after 1945. What is interesting is how, despite civil war, the free state seems to manage that. None of this is meant to play down the serious nature of the civil war here or to be callous about the lives it took or the more it may have ruined in many other ways. But I'm interested in civil war because we need to question how all-consuming we seem to need it to be, both at the time and since. Of course the civil war mattered. It remained a handy register of abuse for decades. But we take too readily, I think, for granted that politics in this state, indeed the state itself, was bound to be, as one historian writes, disfigured by the hatreds, betrayals and disillusionment of civil war. In the 1920s and 30s, as we're now seeing, because of the release of the military service pension applications, both sides requested supporting references from old civil war enemies. But it seems to have taken the historiography longer to get over the divide. Rather than simply understanding the intensity of civil war divisions, I think we should be much more interested in what put this place back together again. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the College of Arts and Humanities at University College Dublin. The Writing the History of Civil War seminar is also available as a video on historyhub.ie.